Blog Talk Radio. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, y'all. Got a long one for you today. Got doing a couple extra. Um, I I think I'm going to be off on uh, Monday, week from now. So I wanted to squeeze in a couple extra stories for you today. And on Wednesday's show, maybe give you an extra... Um, Crystal Kyle and Friends clip or something like that just to make up for the for the gone day um, but today's one of those days where every single story that I'm talking about I'm like next to level into so that's a very positive thing if I don't say so myself I'll give you a, a little bit of a rundown here um, let's see I have Going to lead with Russell Brand getting smeared by the Daily Beast. You do not want to miss that story. That is really something else. There are some really loathsome scumbags out there in the media, let me tell you, doing uh, just complete and utter hatchet jobs. That's what Russell was victim of. Um, I have a CNN host offers the dumbest take of all time on Kirsten Cinema and on reconciliation and on all that stuff. You do not want to miss that story. Might go ham on it. We'll see. Um, I have centrist fuming because progressives stuck to their word and held the line. That's awesome. Kirsten Cinema gets confronted and followed by protesters into a bathroom. Into a bathroom. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Why? Why not? I'm going to dive into it. 
you know how I roll on this show. I do not shy away from uh, the controversial stuff. We're going to dive headfirst into the controversial stuff because that's what we do, son. And then um, also we're going to talk about the Pandora Papers. We're going to talk about Stephen uh, Donziger and how he was locked up. Uh, Alex Jones loses the Sandy Hook cases. A lot of stuff, y'all, a lot of stuff, so don't go anywhere. Oh, and later on, another awesome story. Um, There's a new poll, and a shocking number of Americans want to secede from the country, and it is not just right-wingers. It is also left-wingers. So it's going to be a great show. It's going to be a great show. All right, without further ado, let's get started. We're going to do that with um, our buddy, Russell Brand. It's so elitist for me to say Russell Brand is my buddy because he's, he's not. I just did one podcast with him. But still, check that out on uh, Crystal Kyle and Friends. Um, subscribe if you haven't yet. $5 a month on Substack. You'll get the video. If you want to listen to the audio for free, that's fine. But you should listen to the video. Anyway, all right, uh, let's get started. Here we go. So Russell Brand um, is the victim of just a pure hatchet job from the Daily Beast. Complete and utter smear piece. It was astounding as I read through it, what they were saying. Um, I'll give you the title here. The title is, Comedian Russell Brand has become a powerful voice for anti-vaxxers. Now, you're about to see that is um, a stretch to say the least, to say the least. So let me give you some of it. The comedian seems to have found a loyal fan base in conservatives and anti-vaxxers who have flocked to his YouTube channel accounts for his rambling vaccine-skeptic views. If there's one thing few people had on their 2021 bingo cards, it would be anti-vaxxers becoming enamored with British comedian Russell Brand for his conspiracy theory-laden YouTube channel. The forgetting Sarah Marshall actor has always presented himself as a contrarian, a free thinker who isn't afraid to challenge established views or spout off at the government, both UK and US. But recently, Brand, who always seemed to skew left in his political beliefs, has found a loyal fan base in right-wing conservatives and anti-vaxxers who have flocked his YouTube channel and Facebook accounts, hailing the 46-year-old a so-called voice of reason. They continue here. He's played heavy to his fan base, or to this fan base, interviewing right-wing trolls like Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens, although he does disagree with them on certain points. In June, he asked his watchers, if he should accept Fox News' invitation to appear on the network. Most agreed he should. I would suggest Tucker. He's very fair, one fan commented. The titles of his videos are often designed to delight or infuriate, depending on the viewer's political stance, leaning heavily on incredulous clickbait titles such as, Thought Biden couldn't think any lower? Think again! Did liberals use feminism to justify Afghan clusterfuck? Shocking! Wuhan evidence. Did Fauci lie? And so Trump was right about Clinton and Russia. But for the past few weeks, Brand has also taken issue with the vaccine, casting doubt on the trustworthiness of the FDA, asking if vaccine mandates are an assault on people's bodily freedoms, calling the vaccine a gold rush, and pondering whether people could trust Bill Gates. Hilarious. Most recently, Brand declared that there was a vaccine apartheid going after CNN anchor Don Lemon uh, after he called out people who refused to get the vaccine. Going after CNN anchor Don Lemon after he called out people who refused to get vaccinated. Okay, um, I'll, I'll just give you one more here. Brand has struck a viewership goldmine with his videos. His videos, which appear to be monetized, that's, a, that's like a jab to YouTube. Like, they're monetized and they shouldn't be. 
often rack up millions of views across YouTube and Facebook, and his comment sections have become hotbeds of misinformation. Okay, so uh, there's a lot to say about this. They go on in the article to, they don't give a single example of him actually being against the vaccine. They don't have a single example of that. What they do is, and this I think was incredibly misleading, there's a line in there where they talk about how the first time I read it, it seemed like they were saying, oh, Russell Brand had a family member who died after getting the vaccine. And so after I read through that part, by the end of the paragraph, I was like, that doesn't sound quite right. I don't think Russell Brand said that. I went back and read it again, and what they say is there's somebody in the comment section of one of his videos, and they say they know somebody or they have a family member or whatever who died after getting the vaccine. And they're putting on Russell like he's somehow responsible for every single comment in his comment section, and that that's somehow reflective of his views. Now, listen, uh, I've watched a decent amount of Russell Brand stuff. Do I agree with him on everything? Absolutely not. Uh, for one thing, I do think sometimes he does this uh, almost like above the fray thing where he, he acts like, now I'm not saying what you should do or shouldn't do. I'm not saying what you should take or shouldn't take. All I'm saying is he does the classic, like, I'm just asking questions type stuff. And you know what? I don't doubt that he sincerely believes that, and that's really his position, and that he's being honest with the audience. Um, so I don't even agree with everything he covers when he talks about the vaccine or when he talks about ivermectin or whatever. I, I take stronger stances on that. Um, but he's not anti-vaccine. In fact, it is very clear, if you watch his material, he takes the position um, there shouldn't be mandates to get the vaccine. That's it. He, uh, you know, again, I don't know if he's gotten vaccinated. I don't know what his general take is on the vaccine. All I know is he's against mandates. Now, it's just simply dishonest to pretend like there's not a category of people out there who are pro-vaccine and have gotten the vaccine, but they're against mandates. In fact, that's a, that's a pretty common position. There were just a, a couple of examples of this recently in the NBA I know LeBron James was asked about the vaccine, and he said something to the effect of, listen, I took the vaccine, I did it because uh, I thought it was the right thing to do for myself and my family, but I'm not going to tell anybody else what to do with their body. That, that's, that's their business, effectively. That's his position. Now, you might not agree with that position, but that's his position. So you can't say he's anti-vaccine when he got the vaccine. All he is is anti-mandate. Now, you guys know my position on that. My position is very clear, and I've talked about it time and time again. I actually like the middle ground approach, which is uh, effectively what Biden did when he said you either have to get vaccinated or get tested. I think that's the correct middle ground because the default position then is going to be people are going to get vaccinated. And in overwhelming numbers now, they are. Uh, these soft mandates are working. But there are some people who say, listen, I, I don't want to get it for whatever reason, religious, ideological, uh, I read the evidence wrong or whatever. And so they have the out of testing. That's my position. Now, I don't think that's Russell Brand's position. I think he's totally anti even like a soft kind of mandate. And I know that's not LeBron's position. He's anti any kind of mandate. But people who are pro-vaccine and anti-mandate definitely exist. And they're pretending like that's not the case. And like, uh, you know, Russell Brand is anti-vaccine simply because he's anti-mandate. Now, again, a lot of the stuff that they bring up in this piece is just absolutely uh, ridiculous. They say, oh, conspiracy theory-laden YouTube channel. 
you go and look through his videos, it, usually when he talks about something, he's citing an article that came from a print publication. So you can't call him a, a conspiracy theorist unless you're also going to call other print publications, well-known, established print publications, uh, conspiracy theory, theorists. And they're just not that. So, for example, uh, the thing about Russia. He was talking about a story that just came out where somebody effectively completely fabricated something. They did this total fraud Russiagate thing. They were linked to the Hillary campaign. They gave the Hillary campaign the evidence. And now the news came out. It was totally bogus, which is totally unsurprising because, as you know, if you watch this channel, Russiagate was a fraud from the beginning. There were so many false stories around it, like Manafort meeting with Assange at the Ecuadorian embassy. When that didn't happen, there would have been video evidence of it. There's been a thousand stories on Russiagate that have been wrong. So now here's another one that comes out that shows how it was all bogus. He reports on that, and now all of a sudden, he's, he's a right-winger, and he's anti-vaxxer? No, look, guys, it's the absolute ironclad truth that if you're anti-establishment from a left position, they come after you, and they smear you, and they have a variety of different ways to do that. Um, so let me go through some more of this stuff, because, again, some of the claims here are absolutely absurd. So he talks about, should I go on Fox News? You can absolutely, now I don't know if he did, but you absolutely can go on Fox News and challenge them. I've done that. One of my segments went viral because I got into a giant disagreement with the right-wing radio host. And by the way, I crushed him, of course. But can you just say, Kyle Kalinske has gone on Fox News, therefore we're revoking his lefty card or whatever. No, that's dishonest. But even more dishonest is, of course, the line, and you guys probably spotted this right away. They talk about how he, he had a conversation with Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro. He debated them the entire time. And don't get it twisted. It wasn't even like, well, he took them on in some ways. No, the majority of both conversations was him taking them on. He even said to Candace Owens in one part, and I know because we covered it on Crystal Kyle and Friends, he was like, are you mental? He was going after her for her terribly dumb beliefs on income inequality and wealth inequality. You can't just say because he talked to them, therefore he's trying to align with the right. If anything right-wingers who are really ideological and committed who watch that are going to hate Russell Brand because Russell Brand challenged them the entire time. And by the way, that was part of the conversation I had, uh, Crystal and I had with him on Crystal Kylan Friends. I wanted to get a sense of what his standard was for who to communicate with and why and when. And uh, because I've gone back and forth on this a number of times, sometimes I feel like I'll talk to anybody and, and it is what it is. But then other times I feel like if I think the person is dishonest, I'm not going to talk to them. And I do think that Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro, to one extent or another, do fit into that box of you're not really totally honest. Like you're playing a role. And so you're not going into the conversation willing to change your mind in any way, shape, or form. You're, it's like talking to a brick wall. So where's the value in talking to them? But even though I was split on that, and I always go back and forth on what's the best way to communicate with people, it was very clear that Russell Brand's idea, and he expressed this to us, is, listen, I, even if they are that, it's still worthy of having the conversation. And if anything, sometimes you shine a light on how absurd they are and how silly they are and how dumb they are, and it undermines them. So, for example, that's exactly what happened when Joe Rogan spoke to Dave Rubin, and Dave Rubin didn't know basic facts and you know, argued against basic building code regulations where Joe Rogan ran circles around him. Like, sometimes in appearance, even with somebody who's dishonest, can further expose them. And I do think that Russell Brand did a fantastic job in both those, uh, fantastic job in both those conversations, basically showing the limits uh, of their ideology. 
and he's an honest actor. He's a curious person, and people greatly, you know, he has them on and he greatly disagrees with them. This is the sign of somebody who's intellectually curious, but also solidly on the left. And the other things he, that they go after him for here, go, oh, you went after Biden, so what? Now you've got to be right wing? We go after Biden all the time on this show, but we're going after him from the left. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm fair. I'll give credit where credit is due. When he signed an executive order that raised the minimum wage for 400,000 Americans, every federal government worker, every federal government contractor, even tipped workers uh, who have a deal with the federal government, I gave him credit. I said that's one of the best things he did. And when he pulled out of Afghanistan, I said that's one of the best things he did. So I'll give him credit where it's due. But he also could legalize marijuana today if he wanted to. And he's not doing it because he doesn't want to. He's a drug warrior. Of course I'm going to go after him for that. He's wrong and I'm right. And I'm to the left of him on that front. He can eliminate student loan debt right now. Right now. He doesn't want to do it. He can do it through an executive order. He doesn't want to do it. I'm not allowed to criticize him on that. I can't go after him for that. I can't go after him for a drone strike which killed 10 innocent people, including seven children. I'm not allowed to go after him for that. If I do, I'm going to be tarred as a right winger. That's exactly what's happening here with Russell Brand. To be fair, I didn't watch that video, thought, uh, thought Biden couldn't think any lower, think again. But I have no doubt if I were to watch that, it'd probably be a substantive criticism of him. So I don't agree with Russell on everything, but most of the time he's spot on. And when he says something like another video they went after, did liberals use feminism to justify Afghan clusterfuck? That's exactly what they did. Now, I, I wouldn't just say liberals. That's too broad. You say the establishment used feminism to justify it because that was one of their main arguments. In the same way they said, oh, we have to bring democracy to Iraq. We weren't bringing democracy to Iraq. They were screaming about feminism but to try to block a withdrawal. The military-industrial complex uses feminism to try to undercut, to try to undercut the argument of people who want to get out. In fact, there was a leak from WikiLeaks which showed that this was a plan. It was orchestrated by the CIA. And don't take my word for it. Go read the leaks. They were like, let's use feminism to try to, you know, basically get uh, otherwise skeptical liberals or leftists on board to be in favor of the war. This is what they said. He's not allowed to criticize that without being called right wing. He's the one taking the left wing position there. And then the thing about Fauci lying, what is this with the, like, there's something in the mind of, of hardcore partisan Democrats or elitist liberals where they think Fauci could do no wrong. We, we know, we have it on camera that he lied and misled people. Remember early on, oh, masks don't work. What? Oh, you don't have to wear a mask. What? Now, look, you could say, hey, early on in the pandemic, people didn't know. Fair enough. But then say you don't know. He didn't say that. He lied. He lied. He's lied a number of times. When it comes to the idea of, hey, maybe COVID-19 came from this uh, bat coronavirus research center in Wuhan, they Hard you as crazy if you believe that. Well, now there's more evidence, and we know it's absolutely possible it came from there. We don't know for sure, but it's absolutely possible it came from there. Now, John Stewart did a whole thing on Colbert saying, of course it came from the lab. Is he now a right-winger? Is he now a right-winger? I mean, every way they go after him is complete and utter bullshit. And they even say, oh, because you casted doubt on the trustworthiness of the FDA. Guys, uh, there was a, just an article, and it was either the New York Times or the Washington Post, one of the major publications, and we learned that there's this Alzheimer's drug that uh, it, it showed there wasn't much evidence that it worked, but then come to find out the FDA approved it. Now, why is that? I don't know, but I do know that the FDA takes a hell of a lot of money from the same people they're supposed to be regulating, the same corporations they're supposed to be regulating, 
FDA is swimming in pharma money. So if the evidence shows, hey, this thing doesn't work, but then they approve the drug, I think that's a problem, and I think that's ripe for criticism. Am I not allowed to criticize it simply because, oh, the holy FDA has said X, Y, or Z? Now, listen, that doesn't mean that government bodies or the FDA or the CDC or whatever are wrong about everything. No, but it absolutely undermines their credibility, and you should have a healthy skepticism. So, I mean, I just, if you're going to go after them, at least make half-decent arguments. There are plenty of things to disagree with Russell on. This ain't it. They even say, uh, pondering whether people could trust Bill Gates. We just learned he was palling around all the time with Jeffrey Epstein, the leader of Pedo Sex Crimes Incorporated. And we're not allowed to question that guy. We just, and don't take my word on this. Go watch, there was a phenomenal monologue from Crystal Ball not too long ago about all the specifics and the details of what Bill Gates is doing with the vaccine. And Bill Gates um, said, I don't lift the patent protections for big pharma. Don't lift them. Let them make their money. So don't let factories all over the world make generic versions of the vaccine so we save more people. We're going to fix it through charity. And what do they do? They get like, what, 10% of the vaccines that they really need to get out around the world. That's what they get out. And then they pat themselves on the back as if they're heroes. That thing is woefully inadequate. What he's doing with the COVID vaccine is woefully inadequate. He knows it's inadequate. And he's, doing, he's protecting the profits of pharma at the same time. It's a scam. It's a scam. Now, Russell Brand points that out. And he's the bad guy. He's the bad guy. I just, elitist liberals and, and Democratic partisans, you got to stop embarrassing yourself, man. This is embarrassing. Do you not understand how embarrassing this is? And you think your hacky smear piece in the Daily Beast, what, is going to take down Russell Brand? If anything, more people are going to flock to Russell Brand. So uh, there are some times with some arguments you might attract an ideological diverse audience. That's a good thing because then what happens is you get them in the door and then maybe they start to soften to other arguments you make. You know, I'm sure when libertarians watch this program and they hear me talk about ending war or they hear me talk about legalizing uh, drugs or they hear me talk about civil liberties in the NSA, they, they love it. They probably love it. And they think he's one of us. And then they keep watching the show. And then eventually when I tell them, hey, single payer health care is the best and we, we need uh, paid family leave and uh, paid vacation time and we need a better social safety net and UBI and all these other things. Maybe initially they wouldn't have liked it, but if they keep watching because they like me on the other issues, eventually we might change some people's minds and deconvert them from an extremist ideology. And I know because it's happened. People have walked up to me and told me they were going down an alt-right pipeline, and then you know, this show sort of took them out of that. But they try to make it out like it's a bad thing. Russell Brand is nobody's right-winger. Russell Brand is not anti-vaccine. So for them to, to do this is just absolutely pathetic, man. Don't take my word for it. You go ahead and read the entire piece in the Daily Beast, and you make your own mind up. But if you don't toe the line, if you, what they're doing is, is policing, policing the limits of the discourse. And this is something Noam Chomsky brilliantly talked about, that the best way to control thought is to have a spectrum of debate that's allowed. And within that spectrum, let everybody go nuts and have, you know, really strong, passionate disagreements. But the second anybody steps outside of that Overton window, outside of the spectrum of thoughts that are thinkable, well, then they, they come for the jugular and they try to end you. And that's exactly what they're doing with Russell Brand here. 
I'm going to say it one more time. I don't agree with Russell on everything, but there's no doubt he's solidly on the left. And if you can't acknowledge that, you're just being dishonest. And that's what this was. It was dishonest. Okay. All right, let's move on. Here we go. CNN host Michael Smearconish offered us here what is one of the dumbest takes I've ever heard in my life. That's not hyperbole. And you're seeing a dynamic unfold of mainstream media trying to portray obstructionist, extremist, corrupt Democrats as heroes. As heroes. So let's take a look at what he said, and then I'm going to come back and absolutely rip it to shreds. Senators, Manchin, and cinema. The problem or the solution? I'm Michael Smirconish in Philadelphia. It's been a roller coaster of a week in Washington. As Democrats tried to advance a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill passed with bipartisan support and a more ambitious $3.5 trillion expansion of the societal safety net that lacks a single Republican supporter. In the end, Speaker Pelosi, having given problem solvers her word, still couldn't deliver a vote. There are 535 members of Congress, but two held the most sway. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. The political game of chicken between House progressives and moderates was actually dependent upon these two senators whose votes are needed for the larger package to get through the Senate via reconciliation, which requires every single Democratic vote, plus Vice President Kamala Harris. Manchin released a statement earlier in the week, and he said this, I can't support $3.5 trillion more in spending when we have already spent $5.4 trillion since last March. At some point, all of us, regardless of party, must ask the simple question, how much is enough? What I have made clear to the President and Democratic leaders is that spending trillions more on new and expanded government programs when we can't even pay for the essential social programs like Social Security and Medicare, is the definition of fiscal insanity. Cinema held her cards closer to the vest, tweeting that in August she had shared her detailed concerns and priorities, including dollar figures, with President Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Here's an indication of her importance. This week, Biden and his aides met with Cinema four times in one day. For their attempts to grapple with the actual numbers and cost, both Cinema and Manchin incurred the wrath of the party's more progressive elements. But Manchin and Cinema are deserving of our praise, not our criticism. Their refusal to simply fall in line and instead exhibit some independence is both a rarity in Washington and a reflection of their diverse constituencies. Consider that Cinema's Arizona constituents pretty evenly divide between R's and D's and I's. In Manchin's case, he represents a state that Donald Trump won by nearly 39 points. And where R's and D's, R's outnumber the D's and independents, are about one-fifth of the population. Plus, who wouldn't want what's in the so-called Build Back Better plan? Two free years of community college, child care and universal pre-K, Medicare expansion for dental, hearing, and vision, extended child tax credit, paid family and medical leave, clean electricity. The question is whether we can afford it. There really hasn't been a serious conversation about the nation's debt and deficit since the so-called Simpson-Bowles Commission, created by President Obama to identify, quote, policies to improve the fiscal situation in the medium term and to achieve fiscal sustainability over the long run, that failed to gain traction back in 2010. But it doesn't mean that the issue has gone away. 
Our national debt is currently $28.8 trillion. That's over $86,000 for every single person in America. From our first president, George Washington, until our 42nd, Bill Clinton, a span of 211 years, the United States accumulated $5 trillion of national debt. During the administration of President George W. Bush, the national debt grew from 5 to $11 trillion. Then under President Barack Obama, the national debt jumped from $11 trillion to $20 trillion. And in the one term of President Donald Trump, the national debt grew from $20 trillion to nearly $28 trillion. No wonder that, that the Wall Street Journal said, Democrats may be angry, but as the days go by, they may recognize that Mr. Manchin is doing them a favor. With President Biden abdicating to the left, the West Virginian is providing a reality check on progressive excess. To that point, I would add, Bernie didn't win the election. Biden did. And a large part of his appeal was that he was the most moderate voice on the Democratic stage. The power held by Manchin and Cinema reminds me of something called the Fulcrum Project. That's an idea from a centrist independent group called Unite America. Board member Neil Simon himself, a former Senate candidate, has often said that the power in the Senate could be wielded by a handful of independent thinkers. Imagine, for example, if Manchin and Cinema were to join forces with, say, Senator Lisa Murkowski and another Republican or two. If such a group were to deny both parties a majority and commit to sticking together, they could dictate what gets to the floor, who is the majority leader, and fashion moderate solutions to big problems. And that, I say, would be a great day for the country. That's what they do now. That's exactly what's happening now. And how does the world look? How's our current political situation and economic situation and global situation and climate situation and corruption situation? He's like, wouldn't it be great if we lived in the world that we lived in where a couple of assholes controlled everything? Now, notice something. He doesn't bring up a single poll number on how the Build Back Better plan, the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, is. He doesn't bring up a single number on that, not a single one. Okay, well, I'm going to show you. Look at this, long-term care. It's plus 68. That's elder care, by the way. It's 80% support. Modernizing the electricity grid, plus 58, 74% support. Modernizing K-12 schools, plus 55, 73% support. Pathway to citizenship, plus 33, 61% support. Universal pre-K, plus 31, 60% support. Civilian Climate Corps, plus 29, 59% support. Tuition-free community college, plus 26, 59% support. Lowering Medicare eligibility age, plus 26, 58% support. Extending child tax benefits, plus 15, 53% support. This doesn't even include other very popular provisions like lowering drug prices, which is even more popular. And there's a new poll that says it's the number one issue for Americans is lowering prescription drug prices. This doesn't include uh, paid family leave and paid medical leave, both over 70% support. And remember, these things are in the bill. There was a poll of Arizonans, and they found that I think it's 89% want to lower prescription drug prices. So when people like Michael Smirkanish make the argument they're just, pff, idiot, lefty, you don't even know how this works. Obviously, Manchin and Cinema are just representing their uh, constituents in Arizona, which is a purple state, and it's not a far-left state. That is factually wrong. They say that all the time. They trot out that stale, incorrect, factually wrong argument all the time. They did it in the $15 minimum wage debate, where they said, Joe Manchin is just trying to represent his own constituents in West Virginia, they're not like you lefties. Meanwhile, poll showed $15 minimum wage was popular in West Virginia. It's popular. 
So understand, guys, he's either the dumbest man in America or he's a liar. He frames the conversation like it's an honest ideological disagreement between, you know, the mob of unruly Democrats and then the independent, reasonable, above-the-fray thinkers, the philosopher types like Manchin and Cinema. This is not what's going on. They're corrupt. They have conflicts of interest. How do you do a whole segment on Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, and you don't mention a single conflict of interest? Not one. And they have them all over the place. Guys, uh, Kirsten Cinema, we just got this reporting in the other day. Credit to David Sirota and the Daily Poster. $750,000 she took from Big Pharma. And then, lo and behold, even though she previously supported lowering drug prices, now all of a sudden she says, I want that out of the bill. I don't want lower drug prices in the bill. I don't want negotiations in the bill. She just took the money and just flipped her position. That is rank corruption. It's legalized bribery right in front of your face. When, when she was supposed to be in Washington, D.C., she left to go to a cocktail fundraiser where all the corporations against this piece of legislation lined up to give her $5,800 a pop. Michael Smirkanish had nothing to say about any of that. He had nothing to say about Joe Manchin and the new revelations in the Great Intercept article called, I think, Joe Manchin's Dirty Empire, where they found that him and his family, I think it's over $5 million that they've made from fossil fuels. So if he were to support climate provisions, which fight back against climate change and try to get us to a clean energy future, it would tank his own personal wealth and his own portfolio and his family's. By the way, his daughter was a key player in a pharmaceutical company that was price gouging people. It was the whole EpiPen scandal. They're, they have her on email, dead to rights, saying, how do we come up with a rationale to jack up the prices on this thing? He has nothing to say about any of that. You consider yourself a journalist, you consider yourself a reporter, and you're not telling the real story of what goes on behind the scenes? You think they just have an honest ideological disagreement where they think the American people are wrong about everything. Americans are wrong about long-term care, modernizing the electricity grid, universal pre-K, pathway to citizenship, uh, civilian climate core, free community college, lower Medicare eligibility age, um, extending the child tax benefit. He makes it seem like they're, they should be praised for taking this massively unpopular position, when again, the reason they take that position is because they're corrupt and they've been bought. And also this idea, we need to attack this idea that um, somehow being independent is in and of itself virtuous. No, the details matter, Michael Smirkanish. Somebody could be an independent-minded uh, thinker in D.C. and support segregation. Oh, look at how independent they are. They're the only person remaining in D.C. that supports segregation. I applaud you. Well, you'd look at that and you'd say, that's stupid. That's a stupid argument because obviously segregation is immoral and unethical. But it doesn't occur to Michael Smirkanish that perhaps being against lower drug prices is also immoral and unethical. And by the way, how many people are going to die because Kirsten Cinema decided to get paid? I mean, this is pathetic. And by the way, the like to dislike on this video is astounding. It's like only maybe 10 or 20% likes, 80, 90% dislikes, because everybody sees through it. I don't care if you're on the left or on the right. You know that what this guy is saying is total bullshit. And the final point I'll make is 
this we can't afford it argument. Nobody ever said a single word about affording it when it came to the military budget and when it came to Wall Street bailouts. By the way, since 2001, the Pentagon has spent $14 trillion. None of it paid for. None of it paid for. And he never said anything about that. Most people never said anything when Donald Trump in 2017 passed a, a tax cut for the wealthy, which added trillions to the debt and the deficit, and 83% of those benefits went to the top 1% of income earners. See, this is how you know the game is rigged. Those things, none of those things are paid for, and they get a total pass. Why? Because these are prioritized. It's, you know, it's, it's a sacred cow. You cannot touch military spending. That's how they, they, they frame it. Well, guess what? What if I tell you it's a sacred cow, people's health care? And by the way, it should be. I don't care if that costs money. But by the way, it doesn't even cost money in this bill. They offset it with tax increases. And that's the other dirty trick. And by the way, tax increases on the wealthy. But that's the other dirty trick that Manchin and Cinema engage in. They go, oh, I, we can't add uh, so much to the debt and the deficit. So we can't, we can't do this. It needs to be paid for. Everything has to be paid for. And then the left goes, okay, we'll pay for it. Let's raise tax on corporations and billionaires and the top 1%. And then Manchin and Cinema will go, no. You just said it has to be paid for because you care about the debt and the deficit. Then we propose the pay-fors, and you're like, no. By the way, the only other way to pay for it is what? Cut spending in other areas. That's not a good idea. You have to cut other social safety net programs and things of that nature. Or raise taxes on working people. And that's what these people support. Cut popular social safety net programs or raise taxes on working people, as opposed to raising taxes on the wealthy to pay for a popular agenda. Do you understand, guys, what's happening here? Do you understand... There's a handful of so-called moderates, they're not, they're extremists and they're corrupt corporatists, who are blowing up everything to represent industry, to represent big business. Anybody who's telling you otherwise is either a liar or a colossal idiot. In the case of Michael Smirkanish, I don't know, I'll leave it up to you. He doesn't seem like he's that bright. He seems like he's Wolf Blitzer level intellect. So perhaps he's just a moron. But, you know, what's better or what's worse? I don't know. Is it uh, better to be that dim and that unintelligent? Or is it better uh, to be a totally vicious, cutthroat liar? But it's definitely one or it's definitely the other. Because you know what? There's no way you could do that long of a segment and you could portray these people as heroes without bringing up the conflicts of interest and the corruption. This isn't some honest ideological disagreement. Not even close. And there's a reason why he buried all of the, the provisions that are incredibly popular. There's a reason he didn't bring up any numbers. Because when you bring up those numbers, you see, wow, it is wholly unreasonable to be against those basic things. Things that would move us slightly in the direction of being like every other developed country. This is manufacturing consent. This is controlling the debate. This is limiting the spectrum of what people are allowed to say. And this is considered the enlightened, reasonable, above the fray, moderate, centrist position. No, what if I told you this bill is moderate and centrist? What if I told you that? Because that's the reality. It's right smack dab in the center of mainstream American opinion. Now, that's the commentary that's accurate. And nobody in mainstream media is giving you that commentary. 
Okay, next. So um, let me give you all an update on what's going on right now with the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, the Build Back Better bill. Um, Pelosi had originally set the date of September 27th that we're going to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure agreement by then. Um, Then it was pushed back to September 30th. Uh, Then September 30th came. And as I told you guys in my last segment on this, I don't know what's going to happen. We'll see. One of the possibilities is that they push it off again. Well, that's exactly what happened. They pushed it off again. Um, Well, apparently, centrists are absolutely fuming as a result of it being pushed off again. So here is Representative Josh Josh Gottheimer. By the way, I think he's the top recipient or one of the top recipients of big pharma money. And he was one of the holdouts on the reconciliation bill. Here's what he said. This was either the night before what was supposed to be the, the bipartisan infrastructure vote or the day of. Look at what he said. Except that's not where the progressives are, and obviously uh, there's at least 45 or so that will vote against infrastructure uh, if there isn't. At least now they're saying that they no longer need a vote first, but maybe an agreement, a pathway forward. Um, If this all takes a couple weeks to sort out, not because obviously it's not happening tomorrow, uh, as you wanted, is that okay with you? Well, let me just be clear about that. The bill is going to get voted on early this week, and it's going to come to the floor tomorrow as we wanted. And we feel very good about that, so I just want to be clear about that. And secondly, I believe when it does come to the floor, uh, that we will have the votes. Oops. So it did not come to the floor for a vote, and guess what? The so-called moderates, again, the corporatists, are fuming over that. So take a look at this. First, the smaller tweet there. News, the few House Republicans who are planning to support the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill are now rethinking their votes after Biden's visit to the Hill today, saying it's as clear as ever that the bill is linked to reconciliation. All bets are off, says Representative Don Bacon. Now the bigger one, Bacon also said he talked to a moderate House Democrat who is furious with Speaker Pelosi for not keeping her promise to hold the infrastructure vote this week. And the Dem referred to Pelosi as a fucking liar during their conversation with Bacon. Now, it gets funnier, though. It gets pretty hilarious because uh, Gottheimer wrote a letter and, it, you know, going after Pelosi and addressing it to her and saying that this is wrong and uh, tried to get other, you know, so-called moderates on board, corporatists on board. Uh, none of the others he reached out to would sign on to it, which means Pelosi still sort of has them by the balls. Now, Where does the credit go for what went down? The answer is very simple, y'all. The progressives held the line. They held the line, and they stood strong. And they were like, we had a deal. The deal was these two bills go together. They go together. They are linked. If you're going to delink them, you're violating the deal. We're going to vote against it. There supposedly are about 50 House Democrats in the Congressional Progressive Caucus who are like, no, we're not bluffing. We're serious. If you bring this up for a vote now, it's going down. We're going to vote against it. We had a deal. We're going to abide by the deal. And that's the end of the conversation. So they held firm. They held strong. And they flexed some muscle. And you know what? It worked. It worked. So you have to give credit where credit is due. You have to say good job. 
Because again, what would have happened if they voted on this bill and it passed? Reconciliation would have been totally dead and gone. Um, hold on, I'm going to pull up, as I always do virtually in every show, I should just keep this up for every show, um, the provisions of the bill, because this is what uh, the House Democrats went to the mat for, okay? Child tax benefit, universal pre-K, paid family leave, paid medical leave, tuition-free community college, lower prescription drug costs, dental, hearing, and vision, and a Medicare expansion, housing, home care, major climate money, uh, lower Medicare age, Obamacare expansion, and then, of course, in, uh, tax increases on the wealthy. That's just some of the provisions. This is what they went to the mat for. And now they're in the driver's seat. So what have we been telling you all along? You have to play hardball because all the evidence shows that usually the left goes along to get along and they get obliterated and they don't even have a seat at the table and they always fall in line. Well, now they stood up. And since they stood up and since they fought, now they get a seat at the table. Now their voice matters. Now they're a force to be reckoned with. This is all we've been asking for all along. So listen, don't get it twisted. What's going on is still incredibly volatile. There's no doubt about it. Um, but now it is much more likely that the top line number is going to be way higher than what it would have been otherwise. So again, if they voted on the reconciliation bill, they're like, okay, we'll vote for it, despite the fact it's dealing from reconciliation now, if they vote on the infrastructure bill, then there would be no reconciliation at all. It'd be dead in the water, it'd it'd be over, it'd be done. But since they stood up and blocked this, well, now, um, there's a path forward with a lot of left input. So, ultimately, what would be, let me explain this, what would be a best case scenario moving forward? Guys, I want to tell you that $3.5 trillion getting passed is the best uh, case scenario possible. I just don't think Biden has that in him. So, in other words, in order to get the $3.5 trillion bill passed, Biden would need to go full FDR, go full LBJ, call Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin into his office, call whatever House Democrats or holdouts into his office, and make them an offer they can't refuse. Each one is an individual case, so the details vary from person to person. But with Manchin, you say, listen, Merrick Garland's going to prosecute you and your family for all your crimes that just came out that were just reported on, unless, of course, you vote for this bill. And if you vote for this bill, don't worry, I got your back. We're going to build another military base in West Virginia. We're going to give you more money for an infrastructure project. Kirsten Cinema, same thing. Do you want a uh, position in my administration? Do you have somebody in your family who you want a position in my administration? I'll give you whatever you want as long as you vote for this bill. But you've got to vote for this bill. Now, if you don't vote for this bill, you're also enemy number one. We're going to fund a primary opponent against you. We're going to do everything we can to defeat you. And we're going to say that you know, you're the enemy and you're the reason why this thing failed. You're the reason why the American people don't have a child tax benefit, universal pre-K, paid family leave, paid medical leave, tuition free community college, so on and so forth. You've got you to act like a mafia boss. That's the only way to get these people to fall in line. Now, Biden doesn't have that in him. But let me be clear. Even if Biden did do that, there's a decent chance it still wouldn't work, particularly in the case of Kirsten Cinema. Why? Because from my reading of the situation, it looks like there are some signs that she's ready to bail on Washington no matter what. And so if she's ready to bail on Washington no matter what, it's hard to make her fall in line because she doesn't want a future in politics. So that might be the case, that the reason why she's just flat out doing a corruption tour right now is because she's ready to cash in, to just leave kill this bill, leave D.C., and then get paid massive amounts of money from all the corporations that were lobbying against this bill. So even in a best-case scenario, uh, in a dream world scenario, even if Biden did the right things, it might not work. So then where do we stand? Well, then there would have to be a real negotiation. And um, then the details are up in the air. The details matter. So 
the highest I could ever see them getting is $2.5 trillion. But honestly, I don't really think that's going to happen. I think the final number could be about $2 trillion. I'll tell you this. You guys know I've been saying it all along for this entire negotiation. If it's under $2 trillion, I'm an automatic no vote. I think that's a slap in the face. The line is subjective, and different people will tell you they have different lines. It's a matter of opinion. Um, but my absolute bare minimum line is $2 trillion. And again, this is for over a decade, by the way. $2 trillion for over a decade. Um, my line would be $2 trillion. If we get a deal that's over that, I'm listening. If we get a deal that's under that, I'm not. But then, of course, the details matter. So if you mean to test the bill, then it's going to be really hard for me to support because that's a poison pill. Um, but as a compromise, and AOC floated this the other day as well, instead of having a 10-year window for some of these programs, keep the programs in but make it a five-year window. Uh, that would be a compromise I'm much more likely to support because once you have those programs in place and they're universal programs, then it's really hard to just take it away because it would destroy anybody in an election if they're against those programs. This is exactly what we've seen with Social Security and Medicare, by the way. They've been implemented, and, and now it's just almost impossible to take them away because they're so wildly popular. It'd be the same thing with universal pre-K. It'd be the same thing with uh, any of these things, child tax benefits, so on and so forth. So the details would matter. I need to see at least a $2 trillion bill. I don't want to see any means testing. Um, and the other question is, and Jeff Stein has done a great job reporting on this, what the hell are you going to strip out? Um, I, damn it, I should have pulled his tweet up on this. He had a wonderful tweet which laid out exactly the things that could potentially be left uh, on the cutting block and the things that would be in there. And, you know, there's a reason why the corporatists don't want to have a conversation about the specific provisions because they know whatever the thing is that they want to cut is going to make them look like colossal corrupt assholes because they're exactly that. So here I found the tweet. Um, Jeff Stein says, one source guesstimated paid leave, child care, child tax credit, and climate legislation would cost $1.5 trillion. Get Manchin up to $1.8 trillion, and you maybe include Medicare, Dental, and Vision. That leaves out the following. Homelessness, housing, elder care, pre-K, free community college, ACA, and Medicaid expansion. That's why they're not, they don't want to talk about the specifics. That's why Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin have never said a single thing about, I've cut this program and I've cut this program, because they know all the programs are popular. So again, I reiterate, the absolute best possible scenario, and not dream scenario or anything, is like $2.5 trillion uh, and just shorten the window for the programs. Um, an acceptable deal could be $2 trillion shorten the window for the programs, maybe strip out one or two things, maybe three things at most. Um, an unacceptable scenario is means testing. An unacceptable acceptable scenario is uh, going under that $2 trillion line. And again, the reason why it's also volatile is because when it comes to cinema, I think is even a bigger problem than Manchin. I think Manchin can ultimately fall in line with a certain kind of deal. Um, Cinema might be trying to leave D.C., in which case it might be impossible to get her. That would be horrendous. And maybe there are some House Democratic holdouts who would say no, because they also want to leave D.C. and get paid by lobbyists. And then also you have the problem of, let's say you get a super borderline deal, $2 trillion, uh, and like there is means testing, but a lot of the good programs are still in there. Then what happens? Well, you have 50 House progressives who say, we're linking these bills together and fuck off. But if you get a final deal, maybe that deal is good enough where only 15 
House Democrats hold out or eight House Democrats hold out. Maybe that's enough to tank whatever the compromise is. So it's all super volatile, but, you know, that's where we are right now when it comes to um, the reconciliation bill. And I hope there's a path forward. I hope we get something that's doable because if, it, if we don't get something good now, when's the next time we're going to get anything? Because Democrats are probably going to get wiped out in the midterms. They didn't do, you know, redistricting and voting rights reform. And so GOP has a six or seven point advantage going into it. I mean, Democrats could be wiped out for a decade or more. And then what? We'll get in the same position. Even if you get a supermajority of Democrats, we'll run into the same problem with the, whatever the holdouts are in that era. And then round and round we go. And it's effectively the ratchet effect uh, would be happening in real time. If you don't know what that is, go ahead and look up the ratchet effect and uh, understand that that's largely how American politics works. So it's all systems go, man. Put all the pressure in the world you can on Manchin, all the pressure, pressure in the world on cinema, all the pressure in the world on Godheimer and the holdouts in the House, uh, because it's now or never. It's do or die. And that's on a number of fronts. So fingers crossed, and we'll see how it unfolds. Okay, next. Senator Kirsten Sinema um, left D.C. in the middle of these negotiations on the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, the Build Back Better plan, and um, she apparently went to Arizona State University where she teaches a class, and while she was teaching a class, she was interrupted by some protesters. Now, I'm going to show you what ended up happening, which is controversial. They followed her in the bathroom, chopped this video up a little bit. This isn't the entire thing, but you're going to get the gist of what happened, and then we're going to come back and discuss it. Take a look. Of course, people say, well, what if that was your 
family member or your sister? Or what if it was just a politician you liked that was standing up for something? And my response to that is, again, it's borderline. It depends on the substance of what they're protesting for. So if somebody's, uh, you know, protesting Bernie because Bernie is not in favor of uh, giving a blank check to Wall Street and they follow him into the bathroom, I'd be like, well, you're kind of an idiot. What a dumb thing to be protesting for. And that's a weird tactic. But if you're protesting Kirsten Cinema because she's massively corrupt and she's one of two holdouts on the most important piece of legislation in our lifetimes, well, then I'm sort of sympathetic to it. So the tactic itself is borderline. But let me explain something to you. You know what's not borderline? Taking $750,000 from Big Pharma and then coming out and saying, I'm against lowering drug prices when previously I was for it. Those are real numbers. Credit to David Sirota and the Daily Poster for finding all this stuff out. But Kirsten Cinema took $750,000 from Big Pharma, and she flipped on lowering drug prices. Now, how many people are going to die as a result of not being able to get the medicine they need or cutting their pills in half or rationing or whatever? We already know this happens all the time with insulin, for example. So how many people are going to die because Kirsten Cinema decided to get paid, son, to get paid? Now... That is not borderline. We know what's happening. We know the damages of what she's doing. We know exactly what's in this bill that she's trying to kill. Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are trying to kill a bill that has a child tax benefit, universal pre-K, paid family leave, paid medical leave, tuition-free community college, lower prescription drug prices, a Medicare expansion that includes dental, hearing, and vision for the elderly, housing, home care, uh, climate money, higher taxes on the wealthy, They're trying to kill this bill, which is colossally popular. I just told you in the previous segment what we're talking about here in terms of the numbers, but you have long-term care, 80% support, modernizing the electricity grid, 74%, modernizing K-12 schools, 73%, pathway to citizenship, 61%, universal pre-K, 60%, civilian climate corps, 59%, free community college, 59%, lowering Medicare eligibility, 58%, extending the child tax benefit, 53%. The bill is overwhelmingly popular. The American people want it. They demand it in a constitutional republic and a representative democracy. And she's holding out along with Manchin because she's corrupt, because she took legalized bribes from industry, and she's doing their bidding. So desperate times call for desperate measures. And if these people happen to breach decorum by going into the bathroom, I think I can get over the decorum breach. Because you know what's a much bigger decorum breach? having a dead mom because she couldn't afford her drugs. That's a much bigger decorum breach. So, you know, let's flip the thought experiment back on the people who are outraged that they followed her in the bathroom. Um, What if you were protesting a war criminal and you happened to follow them into the bathroom to demand accountability and say justice needs to be served and you should be in the Hague? Is that also a decorum breach? Is that, is that unacceptable? What if, what, what if the war criminal is responsible for a dead family member of yours? Would that be a, too much of a decorum breach on your part to follow them in the bathroom? Is it an outrage that you might hear their pee hitting the water or maybe hear them let one rip? Is that, is that, is that too far? Is that not okay? Guess what? Everybody pisses. Everybody shits. Get over it. Was this a borderline tactic? Absolutely it was a borderline tactic. I don't care 
Desperate times call for desperate measures. She needs to feel as much public pressure as humanly possible in this moment. Decorum can wait when dead bodies are piling up. Decorum can wait when the American people don't have basic social safety net programs. You know what? Again, if somebody followed George W. Bush into the bathroom to say you're a war criminal, and they're being respectful in the process of doing it, I'd be like, okay, borderline tactics, but I get it, but I get it. Again, maybe I wouldn't get it in the case of somebody protesting Bernie, but that's because the substance of what the person protesting for would probably be stupid. So people are focusing, I think, on the wrong angle of this. Right-wingers are freaking out. Some lefties are inexplicably uh, flipping out. No, I'm going to defend them. I agree it's a borderline tactic, but I agree that desperate times call for desperate measures. And borderline isn't clearly over the line. No crime was committed. You know, no law was broken. Nobody got physically hurt. And imagine if Kirsten Sinema felt this kind of pressure everywhere she went 24-7. Imagine that. Imagine she couldn't walk down the street without being a pariah. And this is why I tell you guys all the time, um, you know, I'm agnostic on the tool of shame. This is something, you know, my thinking has evolved over time. There was, uh, at one time I was completely anti-shaming people. Um, but looking inward and realizing that, hey, sometimes shame is a powerful tool and it's been used to change my mind, to make me take a hard look and rethink certain positions. I mean, that's, it, it could functionally be a positive thing. So if Kirsten Cinema or Joe Manchin or Josh Gottheimer or any of them get shamed into supporting some decent bill, well, then in that case, shame would be a wonderful thing. It'd be a positive thing. And I'm objective enough to admit that because, again, I'm personally, when I looked inward and realized, hey, sometimes shame was effective in getting me to rethink stuff and then take a, a better position on it. She's a human being, so she's not exempt from that. Now, are there instances where shame could backfire? Of course there's instances where shame can backfire. Uh, the world is a complex place. The world is a nuanced place. But all else has failed in this instance, and we've tried not shaming forever. She has her decorum. She has her respectability. Asshole CNN anchors are calling her a hero because she's corrupt and taking legalized bribes and supporting industry over the people, and they act like she's an independent, rational thinker. So, no, it's time her constituents let her know, this is what we really think of you. By the way, um, the person in the video, you didn't see this part, but the person in the video talks about how her grandfather just died a couple weeks ago, and she wasn't able to go see him because um, she was brought here as a baby to the U.S. So she's technically undocumented, but she was brought here as a baby. This is what's called the dreamer category. And obviously no fault of her own. She couldn't change her mind. She, she was a baby, and she was brought here. And this is all she's ever known in the United States. She couldn't go to her, father's, her grandfather's uh, funeral in Mexico, and so... She didn't get to be there with him because she wouldn't have been able to get back in the country. So this is somebody telling her a personal story. Hey, this is how what you're doing affects me. What if she felt pressure like this everywhere she went? Maybe, just maybe, she'd be forced to rethink this stuff, maybe change her mind. Now, look, maybe not, but it's definitely worth a shot. And putting the pressure on is virtuous in and of itself because you know what your goal is and you're focusing on it like a laser. And if your goal is to get the American people all of those wildly popular policies, then you're kind of a hero now, aren't you? So let's just hope it works. Let's hope the pressure continues. And um, you will not see me shed a tear over a breach of decorum while this is one of the most corrupt, if not the single most corrupt member of Congress, whose decisions 
will lead to dead bodies because of her greed and because she wants to get paid. Okay. All right, let's do the story on the Pandora Papers, and then we'll take a quick break. I think I have a lot more on this, too. Yes, I do. Okay. There was a gigantic leak that just came out. It's called the Pandora Papers, and it's on a global uh, money laundering, tax avoidance, corruption elite scheme. And I have to say, this is yet another example of something that's going to get probably one one-hundredth the coverage that it should get. I don't think mainstream media will touch this other than maybe a quick passing segment. And I honestly think that even in the new media space, segments like this, um, won't do as well as a random segment on Ben Shapiro or Alex Jones or whoever, because unfortunately conflict sells, personalities sell, and sometimes even substantive stuff, even among very serious people, sometimes it falls short because it's a little too um, abstract and esoteric. And um, that's a shame, it really is. But let me give you uh, the information because the details are incredible. Hundreds of world leaders, powerful politicians, billionaires, celebrities, religious leaders, and drug dealers have been hiding their investments in mansions, exclusive beachfront property, yachts, and other assets for the past quarter century, according to a review of nearly 12 million files obtained from 14 different firms located around the world. The report released Sunday by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists involved 600 journalists from 150 media outlets in 117 countries. Jesus Christ. It's being dubbed the Pandora Papers because the findings shed light on the previously hidden dealings of the elite and the corrupt and how they have used offshore accounts to shield assets collectively worth trillions of dollars. More than 330 current and former politicians identified as beneficiaries of the secret accounts include Jordan's King Abdul II, former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair, Czech Republic Prime Minister Andrzej Babis, uh, Kenyan President Uru Kenyatta, Ecuador's President Guillermo Lasso, and former associates of both Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan and Russian President Vladimir Putin. They continue here. The billionaires called out in the report include Turkish construction mogul Erman Ilkak and Robert T. Brockman, the former CEO of software maker Reynolds & Reynolds. Many of the accounts were designed to evade taxes and conceal assets for other shady reasons, according to the report. The new data leak must be a wake-up call if it's been Guy Gold, a Green Party lawmaker in the European Parliament, global tax evasion fuels global inequality. We need to expand and shape the countermeasures now. The Pandora Papers are a follow to a similar project released in 2016 called the Panama Papers. We covered that as well, compiled by the same journalistic group. The latest bombshell is even more expansive, porting through nearly three terabytes of data, the equivalent of roughly 750,000 photos on a smartphone leaked from 14 different service providers doing business in 38 different jurisdictions in the world. The records date back to the 1970s, but most of the files span from 1996 to 2020. Okay, so just to give you some more on this, the latest investigation dug into accounts registered 
in familiar offshore tax havens, including the British Virgin Islands, Hong Kong, and Belize, those are notorious tax havens, but some of the secret accounts were also scattered around in trusts set up in the U.S., including 81 in South Dakota and 37 in Florida. For instance, King Abdul II of Jordan set up at least three dozen shell companies from 1995 to 2017, helping the monarch buy 14 homes, 14, worth more than $106 million in U.S. and the U.K. One was a $23 million California Ocean View property bought in 2017 through a British Virgin Islands company. The top 1%, okay, so let me, now let me try to put this uh, more into perspective for you. There, now, there aren't many, maybe if any, Americans listed in this piece, which is curious, leading some people to speculate this was from U.S. intelligence that a lot of this stuff came out. Uh, but they actually do put a line in the original piece on the fact that there aren't many Americans in there because our tax system is so atrociously bad and corrupt that they effectively get away with paying no taxes legally here. So they don't need to use as many different shell companies and offshore stuff because, you know, and we covered the story from ProPublica that came out not too long ago. The actual effective tax rate of a lot of billionaires here is anywhere from 0% to like 10% at the absolute most, you know, because they don't take their money as income. They don't report it as income. So they don't have to pay like 37% uh, tax rate on it. So they just keep the money in the company and there are a trillion loopholes where like Elon Musk, I think was effectively paying 3% in taxes or something like that. So uh, I don't really buy that. This is just like a U.S. intelligence leak and it's trying to make everybody else look bad while it makes us look good. No, I think it's actually accurate that our tax system is so atrociously bad and there are so many legal loopholes that corporations and billionaires oftentimes get away with paying nothing. Some corporations have what's called a negative tax rate, which means they just get a giant subsidy from the federal government and from taxpayers. Okay, so um, to put this in perspective for you, the top 1% of Americans uh, may be dodging as much as $163 billion in annual taxes, according to the U.S. Department of Treasury. Corporations dodge $90 billion a year Billionaires dodge $5 trillion over a decade, $5 trillion. And particularly in the U.S., uh, in 2011, 12% of millionaires were audited by the IRS. Uh, and as of today, it's only 3% of millionaires are audited by the IRS. So the bulk of IRS enforcement is going more towards the working class. And it's probably less enforcement overall as well. And the top 1% account for 70% of underreporting. So... And that's, a lot of this is the U.S., the $5 trillion number is not just the U.S., but guys, to sum this all up, it's very simple. George Carlin famously said, there's a big club, and you ain't in it. And it turns out um, there really is a big club of government officials, celebrities, billionaires, elites, and they've managed to figure out a way to cheat the entire system, and they've done it in an incredibly organized fashion. And the stuff that they've gotten away with is absolutely astounding. And this report shines a light on it. And um, it's, it's my old take that I come back to time and time again. If you can look at this report and you don't support redistribution of wealth, I don't know what's wrong with your brain. Redistribution of wealth is the duh position. Because 
first of all, these people didn't earn this money in the first place. Not like they just worked harder than everybody else. But also, even though they have way more, they're also then cheating the system in order to not pay their fair share. So if you're a working class person, you know, you're paying your taxes and you feel like a sucker because you're doing the right thing, you're playing by the rules, and you have these assholes who had a lot of luck, maybe they were born into wealth, maybe whatever it might be, they got to the top of society and then they're paying less than you when you make a normal salary. And they're so rich, their money makes money. That's another thing that people don't talk about. And Mitt Romney is the perfect example of this. He made like over $10 million a year simply from his investments. And we know this because when he ran in 2012, he had to disclose. And he's paying a lower tax rate. He's paying capital gains as opposed to the income tax rate. You guys know how this stuff works. So effectively, this is something that I, I coined not too long ago. We live in something that much more resembles what I'd call an anti-meritocracy as opposed to a meritocracy. The idea of a meritocracy is, you know, the harder you work, the further you go. It's sort of like, think of sports as a pure meritocracy in many respects. I mean, you have to have some natural talent, of course, but then if you work really hard, you can get great. And so you, that'll pay off. There's, you know, a direct relationship between how hard you work and how much, how much better you do when you're on the field or the court or whatever. Um, the way society functions is effectively in, it's an anti-meritocracy. The way the economy functions, the way politics functions, it's really an anti-meritocracy. And so you have all these people who made it to the top and they're already phenomenally wealthy, already far overvalued, whether it's celebrities or billionaires or government officials or whatever, uh, financial elites, and then they cheat the system as well. And it's a big club and you ain't in it. Um, one time somebody came after me for calling uh, basically the group of elites that control politics a cabal because they said Kyle Kalinske is going into QAnon. <clears throat> Wrong. Let me be clear. QAnon is completely batshit insane and not real at all. And also, there is an elite cabal. And this is the cabal we're talking about. I don't know what it is, maybe the top 0.01% or something like that. You know, how you define it might vary, but um, you shouldn't be surprised that how highly organized and structured it is. Because listen, look at the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing. You know, previously, most of us probably would have said, I don't think there's some, you know, elite group of pedo sex criminals. And then Jeffrey Epstein stuff came out and we were like, oh. And now you see the same thing here when it comes to financial wealth. Now, I'm not saying everybody who's in the top 0.01% or top 1% is a pedophile. Of course not. Uh, but what I'm saying is perhaps there's more organization than people previously thought. And the whole system is geared towards their benefit. And this is a great example of it here, just how much they dodge accountability, cheat the system, um, hide their money, as you pay a higher tax rate when you're just a regular person working a regular job. It's grotesque, and it needs to be reformed immediately. Okay. All right, let's take a break. When we come back... I'm still just getting started, y'all. We got Stephen Donziger case. He got locked up. Um, media goes full woke to defend Kirsten Cinema, And Alex Jones gets found guilty. Huh. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
We are back. All right, y'all. Here we go. Still got some heavy-hitting stories here for the second part of the show. Had really heavy-hitting stories. Let's do it. Stephen Don... I don't know how to talk, and I talk for a living. Stephen Donziger is uh, quite an interesting guy. He stood up to Chevron and sued them for their destruction of, I believe it was Ecuador. And um, he won. He won. Uh, Chevron owes the people of Ecuador billions of dollars for just how much they ruined it. And um, in response to that, Chevron ruined his life and persecuted him and prosecuted him. And uh, his story is a terrifying precedent because it shows that if you cross corporations and defeat them, they can uh, effectively destroy you. And that's what they did. So there was sentencing for a contempt of court case that he got related to what happened with Chevron. And he got the longest sentence possible, even after spending over two years on house arrest. He was, he was given six months in a federal prison. So I want to take a moment here and show you. He went on uh, breaking points with Crystal and Sager. And this was the day before sentencing. He's going to tell his story, watch, and then we'll discuss it. What you're expecting to happen tomorrow. Sure. Well, today is my 786-day home detention with an ankle bracelet. I live in a two-bedroom apartment in Manhattan, and I, I, I helped some, one of the lawyers who helped indigenous peoples in Ecuador win a $9.5 billion judgment against Chevron. Um, the companies launched a massive retaliation campaign against me, which included a, a demand that I turn over my computer and cell phone to Chevron, which is unheard of. Um, and turn over my entire confidential case file. I appealed the order, and while I was on appeal, a U.S. judge locked me up, claiming I was in contempt of court. It's now been over two years. Um, I was tried in a misdemeanor case without a jury while I was on home detention. Um, the judge, uh, who's a member of the Federalist Society with Chevron Funds, uh, found me guilty of misdemeanor contempt of court. I contest that. I don't think I'm guilty in the least. Um, but she's going to sentence me tomorrow uh, here in federal court in Manhattan, and she can put me in the prison for up to six months. I hope it doesn't happen. And we're asking for her to release me with time served because the longest sentence uh, of any given any lawyer in U.S. history um, in New York since the federal court was founded in 1789 is 90 days of home confinement. And I've been here now, as I said, 787 days. So, you know, we're hoping she'll do the right thing. We're going in in good faith, and we're going to ask her to release it. So 787 days in your house, and now you're facing up to six months in a federal prison, all for a contempt of court charge. And here's the thing I don't really understand, Stephen. You haven't faced a jury at any time in this. Like, no, at no point have the facts of your case being actually presented to people. How does this happen? How does this work? Well, I think there's a lot of things uh, happening to me that normally would not happen and should not happen according to our laws and our Constitution. Um, among them, I, I believe I do have a right to a jury. I mean, I, I, I was first sued by Chevron for fraud in an underlying racketeering case, civil racketeering case, after the U.S. attorney rejected it, refused to prosecute me. 
was based on false evidence from the paid Chevron witness that I supposedly bribed the judge in Ecuador. There was no evidence that that happened. The witness later was lying. But, but the judge, Lewis Kaplan, who's a former tobacco industry lawyer, you know, convicted me without a jury in a civil case of, of trying to defraud Chevron. Um, he then imposed millions of dollars of fines on me, basically bankrupted me. Uh, Chevron pulled out my bank accounts. I'm dependent on my wife and my defense fund to survive at this point. Um, and he then appointed this other judge, a friend of his, Prescott, who's a member of the Federalist Society, to try my criminal contempt case, and she locked me up pre-trial. No, that's never happened to a person in U.S. history on a federal misdemeanor charge, someone with no criminal record like me. There's a lot of irregular things, and she got around the jury requirement, which, as you know, is requiring a criminal case in the United States, by saying she would not sentence me to more than six months in prison, which makes it a, a Class D misdemeanor, which literally is the most minor possible offense in the federal criminal code. Um, so she avoided a jury, uh, you know, and I think that's not right, given that I'm facing prison. Um, but as they think, you know, Chevron kind of tricked up the system here. And the other notable feature that is just shocking to me is Judge Kaplan, when he charged me with criminal contempt, his charges were rejected by the SDNY, the U.S. Attorney here in Manhattan. He then appointed a private law firm to prosecute me, Seward and Kissel. And it turns out this law firm has Chevron as a client. So essentially, I'm being prosecuted by Chevron. You know, and this is scary. I just want to, you know, this is bigger than me. Because this is basically the first corporate prosecution in U.S. history, and people need to pay attention because I think this is the playbook for the fossil fuel industry to go after lawyers and activists who are successful in their advocacy and holding these big polluters accountable. That last point is the most important point. And it actually does, it's not just about the fossil fuel industry, it's about any industry. What we have here is effectively private mercenary prosecutors who ruined this man's life two years with an ankle bracelet on, couldn't leave his house on house arrest, all because he effectively beat Chevron. Beat Chevron and showed uh, their disgusting, disturbing, polluting practices. So we have corporate prosecutions now in the United States of America, and uh, he's spending six months, the maximum sentence in prison. Uh, For him not to get time served is beyond absurd they are making an example out of him don't stand up to the fossil fuel companies don't stand up to corporate america we run this place you think it's the government in charge it's not it's really corporations because corporations control the government and the thing that i couldn't get over and again he was on crystal kylan friends not too long ago and we had this conversation with him the thing i couldn't get over is you get you know you can be forgiven for thinking well, you have the executive branch and you have the legislative branch, and they're more subject to big money and corruption because they need to run for re-election. But at least when it comes to certain judges, you thought, well, there's a degree of independence there that allows them to just flat out go by the book and you know, enforce the laws and bring about justice. And perhaps they're not as swayed by big money interests. But in the case of Stephen Donziger, it's not even close. The connections between, you know, the people who locked him up and Chevron are astounding. I don't know how this is allowed. But now the precedent has been set. And understand something. The Biden administration could kill this all right now if they wanted to. Right now. All Merrick Garland has to do is take on the case and then drop all the charges. And that's it. 
or they could pardon him or commute him or whatever, they haven't done it. They haven't done it. And that's astounding because, listen, don't get it twisted. Democrats are super corrupt. But one industry that Democrats don't take a lot of money from, except, uh, you know, Joe Manchin is the exception on this and maybe a handful of others in the House. But generally, uh, big oil in the fossil fuel industries, they only give to Republicans, overwhelmingly goes to Republicans, in the same way that, like, you know, lawyers mostly give to Democrats or, like, teachers unions mostly give to Democrats. So this isn't even an instance where you could say, oh, they're just, you know, the Democrats are just corrupt. No, it's just they're not doing the right thing, and I don't know why they're not doing the right thing. I don't know why Biden wouldn't just, you know, clear this all up immediately. You want to allow Chevron to directly lock somebody up and ruin somebody's life because they did a good job. They did their job effectively. No, this is inexcusable, totally unacceptable. The guy's a hero. The guy should be let go. I mean, this is, you know, right up there you're talking about um, Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, Daniel Hale level stuff here that a, a, a true hero is being persecuted under the boot of a corporatocracy. And uh, guess what, guys? You know it. I know it. There's not going to be much coverage of this in mainstream media at all. Print outlets did a decent job because print outlets often do a good job. But you know the way it works. CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, The Nightly News. If they bring it up at all, it would just be a passing mention. And that is a damning indictment of them. Because in a world that made sense with a media that was doing its job as a watchdog of power, this would have been scandalous. This would have been leading. You know, it would have been huge. It's only uh, asshole YouTubers like myself who are talking about it. You have to stop and think, how are the history books going to judge stuff like this? Judge this error. How are the history books going to look at Chelsea Manning or Julian Assange or Edward Snowden or Stephen Donzinger or Daniel Hale? Um, and it's really not difficult when you think about that. They're, of course they're going to say, oh, they're heroes. But as the injustice is going on, everybody's sleepwalking and barely paying attention to it. Credit to Jordan Chariton, by the way, who was there. There was an event uh, before the sentencing. And um, credit to everybody who showed up and actually cares about trying to make the world a better place. This is a tragedy. Okay, next. So one of the things that has been driving me absolutely crazy is the glorification and the deification of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema as they are the holdouts to a, an astoundingly popular Build Back Better bill. So let me go ahead and show you the type of stuff I'm talking about, there's two examples here from Axios. Kirsten Cinema's allies have some free advice for anyone trying to bully the wine-drinking triathlete into supporting Biden's $3.5 trillion budget bill. She doesn't play by Washington's rules, and she's prepared to walk away. Now, this is from another article from Maureen Dowd in the New York Times. People who want to think they can understand her or get to her, let me tell you, you can't. One politico in her circle told me it doesn't work that way with her. She doesn't think in a linear process, like, okay, will this impact my reelection? She just beats her own drum. When she leaves in the middle of something and says, I got to do stuff, it's because she has plans. Sometimes she's just more interested in training for an Iron Man. More power to her, man. It's like watching a movie. The Arizona senator's name is pronounced cinema. 
And it is apt because she sweeps, and sometimes when the triathlete has a sports injury, limps through the Senate like a silent film star. Do you see what they're doing here? They are leaning in to identity politics to defend one of the most, if not the most, corrupt senator. Let me explain something to these goofballs and these idiots and these charlatans in mainstream media. I don't care that she drinks wine. A lot of people drink wine. I drink wine. That doesn't make you interesting, unique, cute, independent, smart. Ooh, she drinks wine. <laughs> I don't care that she is an athlete and does, you know, whatever, marathons or bikes or I, I don't care. I don't I care about how you vote. I care about what you do. And they're trying to take all these different things about her and turn it into an appealing package. Oh, she really marches to the beat of her own drum. She's a force to be reckoned with. And then, of course, all the time, they do the thing about the first openly bisexual, you know, member of the Senate. She's queer. She's queer. Queer girl boss. Yes, queen. Yes, queen. You keep those drug prices high. You do big pharma's bidding, queen. You're so independent. You're so rational. You're so amazing. You're such a thinker. You're so above the fray. You're such a maverick. And that's the other thing. They brought up in one of these articles, she's fancying herself a maverick after the likes of the wonderful John McCain. John McCain, you mean the guy who never met a war he didn't like? That guy? That guy. You mean that guy? We're supposed to what? They're slightly different, and sometimes they're fully with Republicans, and sometimes they're only half with Republicans. That's supposed to get me to cheer for you? That's supposed to get me to think you're a hero? Here's the reality, and this is where they all swing and miss massively. This stuff is irrelevant to the American people. They care about what you do. And Kirsten Cinema just took $750,000 from pharma and came out against lowering drug prices. Now, I'm no genius, but that to me looks like a straightforward example of corruption, of legalized bribery. And you know how many people in mainstream media pointed that out? Zero. None of them bring up Manchin's conflicts of interest, his is with fossil fuel, and, and actually with pharma, and uh, cinema's conflicts of interest. As the negotiation for this bill was going on, she refused to give a top-line number, she refused to say what provision she would cut, and she left D.C. to go do a, a cocktail fundraiser with all the corporate lobbyists who are lined up against this bill. So because Kirsten Cinema wants to get paid, because Kirsten Cinema is greedy, because she's a creature of Washington, D.C., the American people are sitting there and unsure if we're going to get all these popular provisions, child tax benefit, universal pre-K, paid family leave, paid medical leave, free community college, lower prescription drug costs, Medicare expansion with dental, hearing, and vision, housing, home care, major climate money, immigration reform, uh, higher taxes on the wealthy, all of those things, phenomenally popular, and all of them in limbo because of Kirsten Cinema's narcissism, greed, and corruption. And they're not calling a spade a spade. Instead, they're obfuscating, and they're deflecting, and they're doing mixeminism, and they're going full woke, 
Yes, girl boss queen, yes. Make sure that my grandma dies because she can't afford her drugs. Make sure my mom dies because she has to ration her insulin. Yes, queen, yes. Stop it. Now, you guys don't do this, of course, but there are plenty plenty of liberals out there, plenty of standard Democrats out there who fall for these head fakes. You know what this going full woke shit is, right? They try to say, here's, here's the gist of what they're trying to get out there. They're trying to say, oh, she's outlefting you on aspects of her identity. Therefore, don't question aspects of her economic philosophy or her social policies or whatever. That's the idea. So, you know, if a Democrat comes along and they're like, I don't hate gay people or black people and trans people are okay, you're supposed to then give them a pass on taking the money from Big Pharma and doing the bidding of Big Pharma or taking money from Wall Street and doing the bidding of Wall Street. I don't care that you're a triathlete. I don't care that you drink wine. I don't care that you're bisexual. I care that you're corrupt. You're not a trailblazer. You're not a maverick. You're the ultimate Washington insider who's trying to get paid and is schmoozing with lobbyists and who will kill uh, legislation that's overwhelmingly popular just so you can get ahead. And that's exactly what it is. And now I showed you guys, of course, the, um, the numbers on this before, but I'll just read it to you one more time. Long-term care, 80% support, modernizing the electricity grid, 74% support, modernizing K-12 schools, 73% support. This is all in the bill. Pathway to citizenship, 61% support. Universal pre-K, 60%. Civilian Climate Corps, 59%. Tuition-free community college, 59%. Lowering Medicare eligibility age, 58%. Extending child benefits, 53%. The list goes on and on. Paid family leave and paid medical leave is over 70% support. We're talking about majority of Arizonans. In some of these instances, more Republicans support it than don't. But somehow it's a rational, above-the-fray, independent thinker. Marches to the beat of her own drum, triathlete, wine-drinking, queer girl boss. Yes, let's only talk about her identity and not talk about the substance and the policies and the votes. And you're supposed to yes queen us into the fucking apocalypse where bodies pile up because people can't afford medicine and when a refugee crisis gets ramped up and put on steroids because climate change is so bad and we're not addressing it. What do you want to cut from the bill, Kirsten? Go ahead, explain. I'll wait. What provisions would you like to cut? Tell me. Tell me the specific provisions you would like to cut, and tell me your top-line number. Oh, the debt and the deficit. Kirsten Sinema voted for every single military budget since she's been in Washington, D.C., every single one. It cost over $7 trillion. There's no pay-fors on that. That's just a given for, of course, of course you vote for the military. It's a moral priority. And lower drug prices for people isn't? Pay family leave isn't? Do you see the game that's played? And they're, all, they're doing the debt thing and the deficit thing. Oh, my God, the money is so expensive. If the bill pays for itself, it's offset with tax increases on the wealthy. But then they turn around and say, but I don't want to raise taxes on the wealthy. Okay, so you're just, you're just going in circles and finding a thousand rationalizations and excuses to not support the thing that the American people want you to support and the thing that you were put in there to do. This is criminal, man. It's absolutely, it's literally criminal. You guys know I think corruption should be punished as harshly as any of the worst crimes you can imagine. Assault, rape, murder. It should be. And Kirsten Cinema would be first in line in a system that made sense for prosecution. You can't just take $750,000 from pharma and then oppose lower drug prices. You can't just do that. But she does that 
gets away with it, and then gets media puff pieces because she rides a bike and drinks alcohol. And you wonder why YouTube shows like this exist and why we were at one point popular before the algorithm decided to expand, uh, to stop the expansion of the show, the way the algorithm works. If you're somebody who has never seen a secular talk video, you probably won't get recommended a secular talk video. It's very hard for us to reach new people and new audiences because the algorithm makes sure that doesn't happen. They don't know what I'm going to say. I'm not predictable. So just be safe. Don't spook the advertisers. Just be safe and bury him a little bit on the side in the corner and make sure that he doesn't expand too far. Okay, well, so that's why I'm totally reliant on you guys who are already listeners to expand the show further. And um, unfortunately, there's not many others who are delivering the message and calling a spade a spade. The fact of the matter is she's corrupt. She's flat-out corrupt. And she wants to kill the bill to stand by industry and to do their bidding and to eventually get paid herself with that revolving door as well, if I had to guess. So there you have it. They want to yes, queen us into the apocalypse. Okay, next. Alex Jones um, is having quite a bad week, if I don't say so myself. So let me give you um, the new story that just came out here. This is in the Huffington Post. Alex Jones just lost two Sandy Hook cases. A judge issued default judgments, a rarity in the legal world, against Jones and Infowars after the conspiracy theorists failed to produce discovery records. Interesting. So he didn't provide something to the court that he needed to provide to the court. InfoWars host Alex Jones has lost two of several lawsuits filed against him by relatives of the Sandy Hook victims after he routinely failed to comply with requests to produce documents related to his involvement in spreading lies about the deadly shooting. Judge Maya Guerra Gamble on Monday issued her ruling for default judgments against Jones in two different cases, which means he and the conspiracy theory spewing out at InfoWars have been found liable for all damages and a jury will now be covered to convene, excuse me, will now be convened to determine how much he will owe the plaintiffs. The new rulings became public Thursday. In the filings, Gamble eviscerated Jones and reasoned that default judgments should be ordered because an escalating series of judicial admonishments, monetary penalties, and non-dispositive sanctions have all been ineffective at deterring the abuse caused by Jones's unwillingness to turn over documents related to the cases the Texas judge ruled. The ruling, which is often referred to in Texas as a death penalty sanction for a party unwilling to comply with court orders, is a rarity in the legal world. Jones, who is now on his seventh lawyer in these cases, had years to provide documentation requested by the court, including internal company emails. So, um, my reading of this, and of course I'm not a lawyer, but my reading of this is that he refused to comply with a standard court procedure and because he didn't comply with it, because he didn't present evidence that he was legally obligated to present, he's now, they're now ruling against him as a result of that. Um, now, they say it's rare, but also it strikes me as, I mean, not unreasonable that if you're just not complying with the process and what the court uh, has deemed appropriate, that there are going to be punishments for that. Now, understand something. From my reading of the situation, and again, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. If something comes out and changes this, of course, I'll correct the record, but from my reading of the articles on this, um, he's just going to be held liable monetarily. 
And so that means he's going to have to pay. He's already paid out some money, um, but now he's going to have to pay out probably millions of dollars as a result of this case. And, of course, you know, I, I don't know if it was a defamation case or, or libel or slander or whatever, but the details are he, you know, repeatedly, routinely called uh, the Sandy Hook shooting a false flag operation, uh, a conspiracy, a hoax. And then some of his acolytes, some of his followers, harassed family members who had children die in that shooting. And that, by the way, this is all a matter of record. None of this stuff is, you know, opinion. In fact, one of Jones' uh, followers ended up, I think in 2017, getting found guilty and sentenced to time in prison because of how vicious the harassment was of these family members. Now, it is notoriously difficult in the United States to prove, um, you know, guilt in, in the realm of speech because we have the First Amendment, we have free speech, we have free expression. Uh, so anything that's defamation, libel, slander, like you have to prove material damages in order to, you know, win a defamation suit. And in the instance of the person who was being harassed, they were able to prove it. And so that person was found guilty. Now, then, of course, comes the question of, by extension, is Alex Jones guilty? I mean, he certainly laid the groundwork, which led to somebody doing that. But then, you know, you get into the conversation of, remember when Bill O'Reilly called George Tiller, an abortion doctor, Tiller the baby killer, over and over and over, and then some crazy right-winger murdered George Tiller. Was Bill O'Reilly legally responsible for what, you know, effectively somebody who's his fan did? And the answer was decisively, well, of course not, because people get influenced by all sorts of things. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you are responsible for your own actions. You have agency. You can't do this, uh, you know, levels removed and then take people down for that. Now, you could say ethically, morally, in the realm of common sense, of course he bears some responsibility because maybe these people wouldn't have come across these conspiracy theories if it wasn't for Jones. He's a prominent conspiracy theorist. But in terms of in the realm of um, the law, it was impossible to hold O'Reilly accountable. It's impo it was impossible to hold Jones accountable on that specific thing, and it was impossible uh, for others to be held accountable in similar stories. But, but, effectively what happened here is sort of like getting Al Capone on tax evasion, right? Al Capone, mafia boss, gangster, you know, committed all these crimes, but they got him on tax evasion. Sort of what happened here with this case with Alex Jones, where they're like, okay, you're not presenting the evidence you have to present in this case. You're not responding to the monetary penalties and other sanctions. And so as a result of that, you're going down ski, son. You're going down ski. It's a default judgment against you. And so now he has to pay. So uh, what's my overall takeaway from this? They got him on a technicality. And that technicality is legit. So I don't necessarily think the judge is wrong. If, the, if he's not presenting the thing, he has to present. And they've waited and they've tried a thousand different ways and he's not doing it. Well, what else are they supposed to do? What else is supposed to happen? So I, I don't think this ruling is out there. And I also think it, it's not in any way, shape, or form uh, a destruction of the First Amendment or a, a negative precedent as it pertains to the First Amendment. And here's how you know I'm uh, honest about that and upfront about that. If they had gotten Alex Jones, if they said Alex Jones is guilty on – defamation or libel or slander, I would say, I don't think that's right. I think that case would have been ruled incorrectly if that's how they ruled. Because, and I've seen, and I'm going to get to the YouTube aspect of this in a second, but 
I've seen all the compilations of everything he's ever said on Sandy Hook. And the fact of the matter is, he called it a conspiracy. He called it a hoax. He was hyperbolic about it. He was over the top about it. He was wrong about all of it. But it is true that it was his listeners who took the next step and, like, tried to find these people's addresses and went after them. And even though he laid the groundwork that they then took it to the next level, it's not enough. It's the same thing as the Bill O'Reilly thing. You can't, you couldn't hold him liable, even though he was perhaps in the realm of common sense. He was a big spark that then led to the killing of George Tiller. So Jones could have been the spark that then led to uh, these terrible things happening, but being the spark is not enough in the court of law. It's just not. So if they had ruled guilty on defamation, I'd say it's just a leap, you know, because it's very, Jones, his response effectively is like, yeah, I thought it was a hoax, um, but I didn't want the family to get harassed. It's like, okay, idiot, well, then you shouldn't have gone on and on and on about how you think it's a hoax. But that's still a position that in the eyes of the law is totally tenable. Now, I know that's an unpopular opinion. I know you guys, a lot of you guys might not like that, but you have to think of this stuff in terms of precedent. What precedent does it set? If I go out here and I'm railing against the rich and I'm saying they need their taxes raised and I'm saying this person's corrupt and that person's corrupt and this person did that, and then one of my followers goes and murders somebody, am I responsible? Well, Kyle, you did the rant that inspired them to then take action. And, okay, but I never said murder them. I don't want, them to, I don't want anybody to get murdered. It's like when the Republican congressman was killed by a Bernie fan. Was Bernie responsible for that? That's, I think that's a giant stretch, and I think legally you can't hold them uh, you know, accountable and responsible because they're just not. However, in the case of Jones here, they got him on a technicality. And I'm sorry, but I think that technicality is totally legit because at the same time, now that there's effectively some sort of penalty for being wildly irresponsible with what he did, there's no hit to the First Amendment. There's, so that's a massive win. That's a massive upside. There was no, you know, creeping authoritarianism precedent and, uh, you know, speech policing precedent. It was there's justice and the justice is as a result of a technicality because he refused to follow basic court procedure and orders and process. So, sorry, guys, I think it's reasonable. I, I don't know why I'm apologizing. I think most of you will agree with me, actually, that it's reasonable that he went down on this. Final point is this. Um, YouTube and virtually every outlet completely and utterly and totally deranged, delusional, and wrong in how they acted every step of the way. So in the process of prepping for this segment, reading all the articles, one of the things I was planning on doing is showing you guys everything Alex Jones said about Sandy Hook. Uh, so I went back, I know I covered it in the past, I went back to find the video that had the compilation of everything Jones ever said. It's like a five-minute compilation of everything he's ever said on Sandy Hook on air when he's directly talking about it's a hoax, it's a conspiracy, this or that. Because at one point he was denying, I never said that. Not only did you say it, you said it a million times. I couldn't find the video in my YouTube library. Why? Uh, it turns out, come to find out, YouTube pulled down that compilation. Even from people like me who were covering it, Bo's his hypocrisy and how he's a liar and how he's disgusting and vicious and ruthless and, and terrible and wrong. Not only that, the people who made the original compilation, Media Matters, it got pulled down from their YouTube channel more than once. And they said the same thing I said. We're doing this to expose it. We're trying to, to, you know, fight for the families here and show how Alex Jones is lying when he tries to say, I didn't say any of that stuff. We know you said it. It's on video. It's right here. So, but they pulled it all down. They pulled it all down. So here we go. Yet another example of, even though I agree with the, the ruling of this case, 
Um, and even though I think from a moral perspective, Jones could have been the spark that led to a lot of these terrible things. YouTube, I would have been totally okay with an open process and a procedure that says, hey, man, in this video and this video, you go too far, and it's effectively a direct threat against the families. Maybe it's a stretch to say he, prov- he did direct threats against the family, but if you want to make an argument for a couple of the things he said, I hear you, man, and I might agree with you. But when they just gave him the Internet death penalty, that went way too far. And then also now you can't even, like, I couldn't show the compilation of all the things he said that were crazy to break it down and dissect it and explain how it's inaccurate because somehow now I'm punished as a result of him being insane. So when you start censoring, when you start deplatforming, it ends up affecting your own team and your own people and your ideology and your philosophy and people who are correct and people who are doing the right thing. Because there is no such thing as a little bit of censorship. Again, if you want to say direct threats of violence, doxing, very limited basic things, of course you can't do that stuff. I'm with you, of course, because in the First Amendment that stuff is still illegal. But outside of that, you've got to let it go. Because if you don't, then that slippery slope is the slippery, slippery slope in the world. And now I can't show you guys the compilation I want to show you guys because I'll be penalized as a result of it. And by the way, just so you know, it's stuff like that, which is one of the reasons why my channel is effectively deranked in the algorithm. Because I always talk about controversial stuff. I always talk about interesting stuff. I always talk about stuff that is at the fringes in what's allowed in polite society. So, you know, I covered Alex Jones way too many times. I covered others way too many times. And they try to hide my channel as a result of it and not uh, show it to new people. And it's because of stuff like this. So video was pulled from my channel and I had no idea. Video pulled from Media Matters channel and I had no idea. Other videos involving him demonetized, deranked, or both. And so I have to suffer as a result of it. In fact, this video I'm probably showing you right now, uh, I don't know if it happens immediately or if it happens over uh, a little bit of time, but it'll probably be deranked as well because they just don't want you talking about things that are controversial, even if you take the position that is quote-unquote correct uh, on the controversial stuff. So I don't agree with big tech censorship. I don't agree with big tech deplatforming. Um, I think this is the slipperiest, slippery slope of all time, and we've already seen horrendous negative effects as a result of it. I mean, the president of the United States was banned from uh, you know, various social media outlets, but the Taliban wasn't. I mean, you, can't, you honestly cannot square that circle. I don't care who you are. I don't care how anti-Trump you are. So that stuff needs to change. But in terms of the result of this case, if they had said we're get, he's guilty of defamation, I don't think that would have been a fair judgment, and I think that precedent would have been terrible in an anti-First Amendment uh, precedent. But in terms of getting him on the technicality, yeah, I mean, he's guilty on the technicality. So you fucked around, Alex, and you found out. All right, next. So Fox News hosts are um, arguing against the reconciliation bill and the social safety net and a lot of Biden's agenda here. And this is, listen, it's not only good uh, policy to be in favor of all these things. It's also good politics to fight for good things. Because what happens is you bait the idiots on the far right into arguing over insane things with you. Like, do you want them to argue against lower prescription drug prices? Do you want them to argue against elder care or expanding Medicare to include dental and uh, vision and and hearing? Like, do you want that? Because you can get it if you just start making good arguments for good things. 
Well, Fox News idiots walked right into that trap. Look at this. One of the things that kills me is that now that you know, there's a free lunch program in New Jersey, and it's for everyone, even if you, you don't need help to send your child's lunch to school. So those kids are all going to grow up thinking, well, school and lunch is free, right? And then God help the person who comes along and tries to take that away, Larry. You talk about free lunch. I mean, that, that will never – once that happens, right, once it's baked in there, never going to happen. But it's important what you said. You're going to pay for it with higher taxes and higher inflation. And I think most, again – Common sense Americans know this is not right. They don't want big government socialism. They don't want a welfare state we're all dependent on. They're railing against free school lunch for children. And they are totally convinced that they are, and I quote, the common sense Americans. Americans don't want this. They don't want that. Well, actually... I just showed you guys the numbers on some of the provisions of Biden's bill, and the numbers are overwhelming against them, against the Fox News hosts. Uh, What percentage of Americans support elder care? 80%. What percent support modernizing the electricity grid? 74%. Modernizing K-12 schools? 73%. Universal pre-K? 60%. Tuition-free community college? 59%. Um, Lowering the Medicare eligibility age? 58%. Extending the child tax benefit? 53%. Uh, paid leave is over 70%. Uh, now, I, I, don't, I haven't seen a, a number on uh, free school lunch. I can actually try to look it up as I'm talking to you guys right now. But I guarantee you it's over 50%. Free school lunch poll. This is all happening live, ladies and gentlemen. A majority of Americans say school lunch should be free. According to a recent YouGov survey poll, 62% of people say lunch should be provided free by public schools. Americans don't want that. They most certainly do. They most certainly do. But see, guys, this should be a, this is a teaching moment. Because look at how confidently they asserted it and how wrong they were. There wasn't a hint of, well, I don't know, or I'm not sure, or here's a caveat, or here's me hedging a little bit. It was all in right. No, Americans don't want this. We just looked it up, and they do want it. Are you going to correct this? Are you going to come out and say I was wrong? Are you going to be honest? Of course you're not going to. Listen, I'm no, I'm no genius. I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. But the fact of the matter is, when I don't know, you know what I tell you guys? No, no, no. No, no, no. When they don't know, they just say, man, my position is the correct position, and Americans agree with me when I think children shouldn't get free school lunch. I mean, that is astounding. That's the thing that pissed off uh, Martha McCallum. I think about this free school lunch program. Jeez, it's terrible. Really? That's what bothers you? It's not the $14 trillion that we spent on the Pentagon since 2001? That's a real number, by the way. $14 trillion with a T. What do we have to show for it? Over a million dead bodies? A destroyed region of the world? What do we have to show for it? I guess you could say uh, the natural resources that we jacked as an imperialist country, maybe that, but what do we have to show for the 14 trillion? What do we have to show for the multi-trillion dollar Wall Street bailout? The bailout of the people at the top. Nobody at the bottom was bailed out. The homeowners weren't bailed out in 2008. It was the people at the top, and then they paid bonuses to the same assholes who just bankrupted their companies. They, don't, they never said that about endless military spending, endless Wall Street bailouts, uh, endless tax cuts for the wealthy, like under Trump, which Larry Kudlow... Uh, was part of his administration and helped with that legislation, 
and 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%, blew trillions of dollars uh, of a hole in the debt and the deficit, never said anything about that. But free school lunch for kids? By the way, how small is that number probably compared to all the stuff I just mentioned? How, how little would it cost to make sure kids in public school have free lunch all the time? It's a drop in the bucket compared to a lot of these spending priorities, and they're outraged by it. They're absolutely outraged by that idea. If you're creating a modern, civilized society, it's going to be some sort of hybrid, including aspects of socialism. So the question is, what things should we take off the table as a modern and civilized society? What should you just get as a result of being human and being alive? People have very simple, straightforward, basic answers to that. You know, probably a roof over your head, some food in your belly, health care, education. And at a certain point, you say, we've given enough where it's equal opportunity, so now you're on your own and you go out there and try to make it. That, in my opinion, that's the whole idea of social democracy, is that you try to make it more of a meritocracy, more of a, the harder you work, the further you go. But in order for it to be the harder the work, the further you go, you have to start on a reasonable floor. It has to be a 100-yard dash where everybody starts at the zero-yard line. You can't have Mitt Romney's son versus some kid born in Harlem to a single mother, and Mitt Romney's son starts the 80-yard dash, or excuse me, the 100-yard dash on the 80-yard line, and the, the kid to a, born to a mom in Harlem has to start 50 yards further back than the zero-yard line. So they have to run 150 yards while Mitt Romney's kid has to run 20 yards. That's not a fair system. That's not a just system. That's not a rational system. That's a rigged system. But what are they mad about? Free school lunch for children. Imagine being outraged at free school lunch. Of all the things to think about in the world, to care about in the world, of all the things, that's what you care about. War crimes aside, climate change, famine, drought, all that stuff aside, extreme poverty, all that aside. No, free school lunch really pisses me off. Free school lunch for children. Americans are obviously with us, and they don't want this kids to have free school lunch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what if little Timmy thinks he's allowed to eat for the rest of his life? <laughs> How will he be an obedient worker then? <laughs> yes. Yes. They're a caricature. They're a parody of themselves. So what I say to the left is keep baiting these idiots into taking these unpopular positions. Keep pushing taxing corporations and billionaires and the wealthy, raising taxes on them. That's even popular among Republicans. Never mind Democrats, never mind independents. It's even popular among Republicans. Talk about that. Talk about paid leave. Talk about uh, universal pre-K. Talk about free college. Talk about stuff like a school lunch program. What a joke, man. What a joke. All right, next. Here we go. So here's a pretty interesting story that I wanted to share with all you. This is in Forbes. Won't get the COVID vaccine? If you're fired, you may not get unemployment benefits. So they go on to explain um, that if there's cause to fire you, then you might not get unemployment benefits. And it all determines as to whether or not that's viewed as legitimate cause to fire you. So perhaps there are some states where you would get unemployment benefits, but there might be states where you won't get unemployment benefits. Um, and there's also been a number of stories coming out, I'm sure you guys have seen them, of, you know, 
it depends on the industry. It depends on what they're doing. But, like, I think there was 175 nurses that got fired. I don't remember where, how big the pool was of people. Um, so what's happening is there are plenty of places that have the, the Biden mandate in place, which is either get vaccinated or, or test, where you have the choice of those things. But then there's other places, other fields, um, other industries, other companies, where there's, they're like, no, you have to get vaccinated, and that's the end of the conversation. And if you don't, then you get fired. Um, so you guys know my stance on this, and it, it has not changed from the very beginning of this thing. My, I think that the Biden policy is the correct policy, and I think the default should be you get vaccinated. Uh, but I like giving people the out of getting tested. If for whatever reason they're massively anti-vaccine, they could be religious, it could be ideological, it could be they're just wrong and have been brainwashed by a bunch of charlatans and con men and, and frauds and people who don't know how to read the evidence and data accurately. That's possible too. But I think you got to allow that wiggle room, man. So now a good counter to what I'm saying is this. Well, aren't there some industries where it really should be vaccinated or be gone because they're just too high risk? to have unvaccinated there, and it would affect everybody else so much that, you know, it's, it would be terrible if that was the case. To that, I say, maybe, maybe, you know, if you work in a nursing home or something like that, school, like I could see more of an argument on those fronts in certain limited fields. But I will say, generally, vaccinate or test is, is my stance. And so not only do I think it's sort of outrageous that these people can't get unemployment benefits, um, I also just wouldn't have fired them in the first place, man. Now, I don't, don't get it twisted, guys. Um, I'm as pro-vaccine as it gets. I got the vaccine as soon as I could. Uh, I've showed the charts. I've showed the data on the show time and time again. Uh, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated at this point. That is accurate. Over 90% of the people getting hospitalized, over 90% of the people dying, over 90% of the people with severe illness, it's unvaccinated. So it works. You should get the vaccine and watch any of my segments where I go into detail about how they work and, and what happened with them in the trial runs. Did you know in the original trials for the vaccine, not a single person who got the vaccine was hospitalized or died of COVID? Not a single person in the trial for every single vaccine. Okay, it's effective. Are there more breakthrough cases with Delta? Yes, but those cases are generally very mild because you're vaccinated. So get the vaccine. But um, I do not like the trend of just firing people because they didn't get it. I think that you should give them the out of testing. Now, maybe, maybe you say, hey, man, we need really stringent testing. Okay, I'll take it. Fine. You want to give them a rapid test every day they get to work? I have no problem with that. You know how easy the rapid test is? It's not the thing that's got to go all the way up and basically touch your fucking brain when you use the Q-tip. It just goes right in the, in the front part of your nose, and, and you swirl the cotton swab around, and you put it in a thing, and in 10 minutes you figure out. That's not overly burdensome. That's not a regulation that's unfair. I don't think that's a big restriction on your freedom. I think that's a basic safety regulation, and I'm in favor of it. If you say vaccinate or test every day, okay, fine, I'll take it. But I don't like firing them, and I definitely don't like denying them unemployment. And you are giving them sort of a legitimate claim of victimhood now. You are. Um, I do think that, because now I have sympathy for these people. When previously, I was just like, get vaccinated. Don't be silly. But now I look at it, and I'm like, ah, well, I do think these policies are a little bit too harsh. And final point is this. 
Um, when people say that uh, the mandates aren't working, that's not true. Now, listen, I'm not in favor of a hard mandate for the reasons I just discussed. I think that's too much of an authoritarian move. It cuts too much against personal liberty and freedom, which is why I like the out of giving people a testing option. Um, I also can look at numbers, and the numbers are clear. Mandates actually do work in terms of getting more people vaccinated, so it has the desired outcome. So if anybody tries to tell you, oh, the mandates are going to backfire because then people aren't, you know, people aren't going to get vaccinated, no. The number of people who are uh, resigning and, or who are getting fired is tiny compared to the number of people who are effectively complying and saying, okay, I guess I got to get the vaccine. So they work. Hard mandates work. But again, my disagreement with them is not that I'm saying they don't work. It's, it's me saying it's a principal disagreement of I just think that's a little too authoritarian, a little too restrictive, and I do like giving people that out of testing if, uh, if they so choose. So I don't like people getting fired for it, and I don't like them not receiving unemployment. That's too harsh, and I think that does give them a, a victim complex that's not unfounded, and I don't want these people to be viewed as victims. I want them to be looked at as what they are, which is people who are wrong because of a religious reason, wrong because of an ideological reason, or wrong because they were brainwashed, um, and are just convinced that in the wrong position, that these things don't work. And a final point is this. Don't you dare, I beg of all of you, don't fall down the rabbit hole of anecdotal bullshit because millions of smart people's brains have been left as roadkill when they go down that path. And that's why every time I talk about this, I give my own anecdote. Sagar and Jetty got COVID, had a breakthrough case. Uh, Crystal was with him when he was mildly symptomatic. Knowing how contagious Delta is, she should have gotten it. She didn't get it, probably because she's vaccinated. And then, of course, I, I do the show with Crystal, and I'm with her a lot, and I should have gotten it too, and I didn't get it, probably because I'm vaccinated. So if you, if you are inclined to sort of fall for the game of, here's my anecdote, well, here's my anecdote, okay, well, there's an anecdote for you. You want another anecdote for you? Uh, everybody in my, in my personal life, has been vaccinated, and nobody had a really bad reaction to the vaccine. The worst was maybe like a day of very mild cold symptoms, you know, maybe some chills, a headache or something. My personal experience was 24 hours after I got the vaccine, I had a headache that lasted maybe two or three hours, and then it went away, and I was fine. No chills, no other symptoms, no problems. So if you want, again, if you're the type to fall for anecdotes, well, there's my anecdote. Everybody around me had a uh, wonderful reaction to it. Nobody has gotten COVID since they've gotten vaccinated. Uh, Crystal should have gotten it. I should have gotten it. We didn't get it. Uh, so there you go. Counteract that with the people who say, well, I know somebody who died after they got it. A lot. Of, you know that the anti-vaxxers were pointing to data. They were like, look at the thousands of people who died after they got it. We vaccinated, what, over 150 million Americans? And you see that some people died. Some of these people were like 85 years old and they got the vaccine and then they died. You know, they could have just died, right? You, sometimes people just die at 85. Is it that crazy to you that that happens? But I swear, some anti-vaxxers look at that data and they're like, oh, that's because of the vaccine. What? I mean, it's just they're, they're working backwards from their conclusion. They, they want the vaccine to be, you know, to be incorrect and, and a conspiracy or, and it doesn't work and it's a devious plot or whatever. 
you can hold two positions at the same time. Big Pharma is greedy, they're corrupt, they are profit-driven, and also antibiotics work. And if I break my arm, I'm going to get it set and then put in a cast. And vaccines work, just like the fucking polio one I got, and the rubella, and the measles, and the tetanus, and the this and the that, and now the COVID one. Anyway, I digress. Don't make these people victims. Unfortunately, that's exactly what's happening. This video got under my skin. Um, Joe Biden paid tribute to his son, Hunter. He's talking here about addicts and rehabilitation and, you know, the scourge of drugs and getting better and credit to everybody who's done that. Let's take a look at this, and then, of course, I'll come back and talk about his record. Across America, approximately 23 million people are in recovery from a substance use disorder, and millions more are affected by the addiction. As National Recovery Month concludes, I want to celebrate all of you out there who are in recovery. And let those of you who are not yet in recovery or who have loved ones who are with substance use disorder know that you're not alone. This is personal to millions of families. It's personal to my family. My son has written about it. And I know, I know that there's hope. Treatment works. Recovery is possible. And my administration is here to support every person and every family on their journey to recovery. Through the American Rescue Plan, we've delivered nearly $4 billion to strengthen and expand mental health and substance abuse disorder services. We're working with Congress to increase funding for states to ramp up recovery support. We're expanding coverage and lowering costs to make treatment for substance use available to more people. And today, enrollment in the Affordable Care Act coverage Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program are all at the all-time high. And for more people than ever, they'll now have access to treatment. And we're also investing in key tools and proven interventions to prevent overdoses and deliver help to underserved communities. And we're supporting all the caregivers, health care providers, and family members who are helping people on their journey to recover. Together, we celebrate with those of you who are in recovery and grave for those who have lost someone. We hold all of you in our hearts, and we commit ourselves to helping more families know the joy and relief of recovery. You know, when we work together, support each other, we put recovery within reach for more people. We can do this. Thank you, and God bless you all. The problem with this is Joe Biden has been a drug warrior his entire career. He was always for, you know, tough on crime legislation. And as a direct result of the policies he supported and voted for and pushed and maybe even wrote in some instances, I think he was one of the authors of the crime bill, um, you have a whole generation of mostly young black and brown people being locked up for nonviolent drug offenses. And, of course, many poor whites as well. So you can't on the one hand say, oh, my God, my son so brave. Here's a tribute to him. He was addicted, but then he was rehabilitated. And you can do it too. You can get through it too. If your policy preference for everybody else's kids is you go to prison. You go to prison. If you use drugs, if you sell drugs, if you're involved with drugs. He wanted to, there was a famous video of him talking about he wants to ban raves. What does that even mean? It's like saying I'm going to ban a specific kind of party. That's incredibly authoritarian and doesn't even make sense. And what would the definition, legal definition, be of rave? Like, uh, uh, 
But this is who we're dealing with. This is who we're dealing with. This is a guy who wanted increased penalties, more mandatory minimums. Uh, he was as harsh as it got. You know, throw the book at everybody who's involved with drugs, except my son. Except my son, because my son is my son, and we're special. And so when it's my son, I'm going to look at it like a mental health problem. And addiction is a personal issue, and it needs to be worked out. People need help who, who have addiction. Weird, but for everybody else, they don't deserve help. They, don't, uh, they shouldn't get a chance at rehab or rehabilitation or whatever. They just lock them up. But see, that's the thing. It's just the hypocrisy is obvious, and it's astounding. Because if uh, Hunter was a black kid in the Bronx, he would have been locked up because of Joe Biden. So I don't want to hear anything from Joe on this unless and until he signs an executive order, at the very least decriminalizing drugs, decriminalizing marijuana, but really he should just legalize it. And you can do that through executive order. Just take marijuana off the um, scheduled substances list. That's it, and it's effectively legal. He can do it himself, just like he can abolish student loan debt himself. There are certain things the president can do by himself. Uh, control foreign policy, eliminate student loan debt, um, do certain economic things as it pertains to the federal government specifically. So he could do it. He could just legalize marijuana, you know, or he could push some sort of bill to get universal uh, rehab centers, addiction treatment centers. He's not going to do that. All the sympathy and the empathy and the altruism and the humanitarianism is saved just for Hunter. For everybody else, don't pass go, go right to jail. That's the problem here. I want everybody to get the support that Hunter got. Just casual users, and there's not a problem, as we learned from Dr. Carl.